Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And this week, we'll be talking biotech. We're going to talk more biotech than we usually do, because we're going to bounce around to a couple of recent news topics that people have asked to hear more about. And today, we're going to speak with Cameron English, who Cameron, you may recognize from his work with a couple of different efforts, whether it's the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast, where I used to be a co-host. Uh, or by his work with the American Society of, uh, wait a minute, hold on a second, the American Council for Science and Health, right? That's it. You nailed it. <laughs> I always get it backwards. It's A-S-H-C-H. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's happening, Cameron? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, Kevin. It's great to talk to you. It has been quite a while. So uh, I, I hope all is well and um, you're enjoying your life as a dad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we used to do this you know, at least once a week, we had a conversation about science and we answered questions and talked about um, things on science, facts and fallacies, which you now do with the effervescent Dr. Liza Dunn. And uh, I really would encourage people to go uh, check that out. And so where can people find that podcast? Anywhere podcasts are sold, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And of course, it's 100% free. You don't have to pay for it because of uh, the generous sponsorship of the genetic literacy project yeah so any place where podcasts are freely given away correct you can you can get one yeah or where they're sold because they're uh, the, you know the, the podcast black market is rich with great, <laughs> great material so what, what do you know about citrus greening disease well my understanding as a layman is that it has been a very very serious problem for the citrus industry for many years now and there are viable solutions in the pipeline at least um, but they've been held up primarily because of, of marketing concerns, because the anti-GMO movement has been so ferocious in trying to keep uh, consumers scared of these different technologies that the industry is scared to really invest in them and really develop and commercialize them. So I'm, I'm hoping things are changing and maybe you can speak to that. What, am I on the right track there? Yeah, I really wanted to touch on that today because I think things may be changing. And I, I gave a talk at the International, and this is another acronym I screw up all the time, I, ICBC, the International Citrus Beverage Conference last week. Mm. And it, it was really, um, I, I kind of took a little bit of a chance of going up in front of the audience. It was called, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and the title of it, GMOs, Can We Get a Do-Over? And this topic came up about, so, so citrus greening disease, just to go back on what this is, a citrus greening disease is a uh, systemic disease of citrus plants. It is spread by a bacterium that is um, Labarabacter, um, which is a, you know, horrible, weird bacterium to work with, very difficult to trace, very difficult to culture. Um, just a, a real pain of a bacterium. And this thing lives inside the vasculature of plants. And uh, over time, the plant goes into the decline. The citrus tree goes into decline. It's spread by something called the Asian citrus psyllid. So it's a little tiny 
uh, insect that's smaller than like maybe the maybe the tenth of a grain of rice, a little tiny little white guy that uh, that spreads um, this disease from tree to tree, and so uh, this is a, a huge problem in the state of Florida. Uh, it's it's been around the world for a long time. It's been in China forever, but it came to U.S. in two thousand and five, and uh, and now has is endemic throughout the state. Every county has it. Um, I don't have it at my place yet, so that's kind of cool. We don't. Um, I've probably got forty-one citrus trees, and I haven't seen any. Well, forty-two. I didn't count this one outside the window here, um, and uh, I haven't seen a, I haven't seen any evidence of greening or the psyllid here, which is really cool. So it's just I'm far away from the nearest tree, um, and eventually I will get it here, and it'll kill everything. But the the problem is is that it makes the tree go into decline. It looks like. Um, nutritional deficiency uh then it goes into uh it just kind of crashes over time you get a weird yellowing of the leaves you have poor quality fruit fewer fruit smaller fruit bad tasting fruit and it's really turned our industry upside down our industry which i don't remember the numbers but um it, it basically has taken the juice orange industry and the fresh orange juice industry of florida down almost nothing um i mean it was I shouldn't say almost nothing it, it compared to where it was. It, it's far down um, probably by 80 or 90%, I think at this point. And some growers are still making money. There's still trees, but um, it's, it's pretty sad. And the, the diseases spread from here through the South, through Texas, through Arizona and into California now. So you have it over there in California and, uh, and, it doesn't look like there's um, any, uh, you know, immediate chance for a change. But do, do you know the strategy that the uh, industry took originally to, to get through this? I want to say it was um, selective use of antibiotics. Is that right? Ooh, that, there's a part of that in there. They, they're using antibiotics in trees. And that seems to maybe have some effect in some cases. That's still a lot of the arguments still out on that one. Okay. Um, but it was, it was going to be a thing we were going to try to breed our way through by getting in better rootstocks and better cyan material and improve varieties. And we, and we have that. Um, something called sugar bell is really, really, really tolerant, really, you know, lives for a long time with the, with the disease. But you're, you're right in that the, uh, the industry said we're going to um, not take transgenic approaches. We're not using genetic engineering approaches. And uh, how many times, how many times have you seen uh, non-GMO orange juice? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, is that, I, that was a question that occurs to me is, you know, you can't use any of these technologies, but presumably somebody wants to sell non-GMO project branded orange juice. So what do you do in that case? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. It was Coke and Pepsi are the two big companies. It's Minute Maid and, uh, and Tropicana are Coke and Pepsi. And they went ahead and put non-GMO project stickers on their, uh, on their products. Um, all the rest of them wrote non-GMO, you know, Flora's natural and all the other ones went and called it non-GMO, like playing into the uh, hysteria, which, you know, a small number of people triggered and basically said to the consumer, look, this is bad stuff. We're not going to include it, you know, mm -hmm. use it like a warning label. And right. the funny part, I, I talked to somebody from Coke at this meeting who said, um, you know, that, you know, really appreciated my talk. You know, I was glad that I said it was a mistake and all this stuff, but they basically gave money 
to an industry or, you know, they, they Coca-Cola and Pepsi paid money to the non-GMO project who is no big fan of Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I, and they, they've uh, probably gone after any multinational food company. Um, they probably were blowing the whistle about Coke causing cancer when the IARC aspartame decision came down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, be careful of what you do, folks. If you don't give these folks the fuel and the stage. And and so now what's happening is the industry seems like maybe it's excited about moving forward with a transgenic solution. I'll be talking to Dr. Zhonglin Mao a few, in a week, few weeks or Zhonglin Mu. Uh, MOU. Um, he's an old friend of mine who I always said his name wrong um, about his innovation. And and they have some uh, trees that are overexpressing a rabidopsis, so a plant protein, which seems to heighten plant defenses and uh, may make it more tolerant of the disease. Um, when we did it in strawberry with the same gene, uh, we lost a lot of yield. So it wasn't anything anybody would be too excited about. Um, but a uh, 50% yield on tolerant trees is better than no yield from dead trees. So, uh, that's about where we are. Well, let me ask how, how hopeful are you that this is going to result in, um, deregulation? Cause, cause I know you have to get federal regulators to give this the stamp of approval. And I, at least as, as recently as 2017, there was, there was some concern about a particular fluorescent protein. That was yeah. that was still being used in in this, you know, in this approach. Um, so is is that still where things stand, or have things developed since then? Uh, well, well, the the problem there was is that a couple of um, uh, colleagues of mine in my department, Jude Grosser and uh, Dr. Manuel Dutt, they uh, created the same lines, but they used a green fluorescent protein, so the one as a selectable marker, so they could see what was transformed. Right. And that one hasn't been deregulated yet, even though it comes from jellyfish and people presumably are eating it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you eat a lot of jellyfish, um, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> have you ever had the peanut butter and jellyfish sandwich? Fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they created this years ago and it worked well and they've done other stuff with other genes associated with systemic acquired resistance with uh, salicylic acid, acid metabolism. And they've shown or sensing and they've shown uh, that, that you can get long term durable resistance, but something that would be impossible for a university to deregulate the mm-hmm. um, version by Jonglin Mao, Mo, <laughs> Mo, Mu. <laughs> I, you know, I never get his name right. I've said it wrong for years and then I got corrected and now I get still go backwards. So Zhang Lin's, uh, Dr. Zhang Lin's uh, version doesn't have that. And ah. it uses a different selectable marker, which has already been widely uh, seen as not consequential because it's in every, it's in bacteria where it came from that we, you know, swallow in every breath. So um, this is a uh, plant that may move quickly through deregulation, how it's going to hold up in the long term against disease is hard to say, but the mistake that is always made in this, in my, you know, stupid opinion is everybody's looking for a silver bullet. And I don't think there's a silver bullet approach when you're talking about something like a battle against HLB, which stands for Wang Lung Bing or its Chinese name, um, citrus greening disease. I think you have to have rootstocks that are tolerant. You need to have cyan material that can withstand the, the 
uh, pressure. You need to use genetic engineering as best you can and management techniques, which are nutrition mm. and, um, and, uh, all kinds of other things you can do with specific ways of pruning, pruning to get vigorous, um, new leaves, ways to manage the insect, you know, in ways like when it's, when it's most likely to spread the disease, treating the, the, the plants in, in coordinated ways so that the field on the east side of Highway 27 is getting sprayed at the same time the one is on the west side so that you just don't have the bugs moving back and forth. There's mm-hmm. so many things that we could do, but it's going to take coordination and it's going to take a multifaceted approach. And um, this is something that um, is really tough to do. And the sad part is I talked to so many growers this weekend uh, who you know, previously being in university leadership, I always enjoyed that part. And I talk to people and, and there's a very, very strong sense that the university isn't doing anything. Oh, they're taking, a, I heard one guy say, well, they're, they already have a cure, but they're taking this because they, they keep, they keep the cure under wraps because they want the grant money. And, um, <laughs> you know, when you got growers saying stuff like that, it's like, come on guys, that, that we, there's nothing that my colleagues would like more than to tend to discover a cure for this. And um, so there's a lot of bad feelings out there. I think, uh, you know, faculty are feeling, you know, the ones who wanted to do transgenics feel like we passed on a good thing. And uh, the ones who, um, who did all the breeding for so long um, and who did a nice job at, at, you know, breeding citrus trees takes time, folks. You can't have a, a new genetic line in, you know, in, in 18 years. It's as silly as that sounds. You can get maybe, maybe two or three generations at the most. And, uh, you know, and then once you have that, how do you get 60 million trees from the one? So it takes time. And so there's a lot of bad feelings out there. And I, I, it breaks my heart because everybody's reasonable here from growers to folks in the industry, to the scientists that are working on it. Um, and, uh, it just, it's just a real bad situation. Well, let me ask, um, Let's just say, and I'm. Sh- it sounds like this is still hypothetical, but let's say Pepsi and Coke stop bending the knee to people that hate them and think their very business model is evil, and they actually start investing in these different solutions you're talking about. How significant of a change could that induce if they just said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna jump on this because we see this threat to our business"? I think it would have changed instantly. I think that if you had the superpower money of these kinds of companies, you know, this is getting done from the Citrus Research and Development Corporation, which is not uh, a small potatoes organization, but as their um, box tax dollars have come down, they're supporting research less and less just because there's not money to do it. The university doesn't have the money and uh, federal agencies like USDA have been generous in the way in which they've approached this, at least based upon their small kitty of dollars. And if we had superpower, big money coming from companies and really threw everything at this problem, um, we, I think we would get to a solution, but it's going to take an integrated solution. It's going to take many approaches and, um, you know, and, and there's still a lot of rattling going on about, you know, individual people who say, well, we got a solution in, uh, uh, in citrus, you know, by using gen- using CRISPR or gene editing, and okay, well, maybe y- you think you do, but where's the evidence? And you know, and, and you may have a tree, hmm. you know. I mean, but now you have to get that tree to four or five years old, get it to flower, and now cro- and now 
get the fruit from that tree and now get the next generation and, or be able to push this thing to tissue culture and make, you know, make, um, 300 trees, which you can put a hundred on three different locations around the state and infect it and see how they do, or expose it to uh, greening and citrus canker and all the other diseases that are out there and get a real field experiment going. But even the symptoms of citrus uh, greening may take four, five, six, seven, ten years to present. Mm. So this is a long process. And and I and instead of shooting for a silver bullet, we got this thing now. We should have had Coke and Pepsi and everybody else who was making money from this um, flooding dollars into breeding programs and expanding breeding programs, expanding transgenic efforts, expanding genomics efforts, uh, genomics assisted breeding, looking at ways to manage DNA. We should have spent a whole lot more money on the bigger question with everybody on the same team and with the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been a very different outcome. And again, not an expert in this area. Someone's going to complain and say, well, we threw lots of money. I get it. We have an opportunity now in Citrus 2.0 to cross that gap. And, and I, I hope that the other day I gave this talk and I really kind of pointed a finger and said, hey, you know, if you want to do this, let's do it. But let's stop it with overstepping the data and, 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 uh, and, and having solutions that aren't really there yet, not ready for prime time. It just breaks trust with the consumer. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, it seems to me, looking at this from the outside, that this would be an optimal time to try to restart this campaign uh, because there's been some interesting research in the last few years that indicates that uh, people are talking about the GMO issue a lot less. If you just look at um, social media interactions, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a particular study in GM crops and food in 2020 from our friends at uh, the Alliance for Science at Cornell University. And they found that people are talking about the issue less on social media and uh, traditional media like newspapers and and um, not not print necessarily, but just traditional journalism. They're still covering crop biotechnology, but they're talking about it much more favorably than they ever have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the exception would be the glyphosate issue because that has obviously been quite negative at certain points. But nevertheless, there's been a positive trend in what the media is saying, and it seems that people are not as concerned about this as they once were. So this seems like it, it, we could get in at the ground level and sort of recapture the conversation. What do you think about that? No, I think that's good. I think, And I think it's necessary because, and this is the other thing that's really funny. Maybe we could kind of segue into a, a different topic here um, that I've noticed that you, you have some other residues of the glyphosate conversation. And I think the folks like Organic Consumers Association, the U.S. Right to Knows, all these folks who have been, uh, you know, the uh, GM Watch, all these organizations that have been against genetic engineering, I think they are now really, I mean, I always said they got blood on their hands and they've got a body count. Now I think it's going through the roof because here they derailed efforts to educate about glyphosate and tell the truth about glyphosate based upon the scientific literature. And they, they poisoned a discussion about a relatively benign agricultural chemical. And the other day I was reading on Facebook something, uh, or no, it was even this morning. Uh, there was a, a persimmons grower downstate and it's persimmon season here. We, we sold a bunch of them at farmer's market and there's a persimmons, persimmons grower that's growing them. 
And uh, someone puts in the comments of their you pick, they use glyphosate on their trees. <laughs> now I know you're, you know, you're very adept at science. You know science, but you know you're not a scientist by training. Um, what would happen if you sprayed glyphosate on persimmons trees? Um, I'm going to go with they would die. <laughs> they would, I mean, and and, and 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 they would die, right? And so here, this person saying they're using this stuff on trees, and they put this in there to dissuade families and people who are looking for fresh local fruit from a small farmer, dissuade them from going to their service. And you see where I'm going here, mm-hmm. because they have they have you know they they did this w- with the idea of. You know, we hate Monsanto and and Syngenta and Bayer and all, you know, mostly Monsanto, right? But Roundup and a company that's been room room temperature for five years now. They hate hated the big company, but guess who's going to be paying for it now? And it's the small farmer yeah. who uses glyphosate because you can't beat it for controlling weeds along a, f- a fence line, you know, in terms of cost and safety and efficacy. And so that so now you've got people who are emboldened with lies and, and and BS that they've heard from these organizations that now are going out to hurt small farmers. It's a tragic development, but if I can end on a hopeful note before we move on here, Kevin, um, I think the anti-glyphosate actors, hysterics, whatever you want to call them, I think they've they've run out of steam and and I'm going to take this from our, our mutual friend, Carrie Gillum. <laughs> this is a blog post she wrote last April and she's commenting on us on a, a survey. It was uh, a survey of 100,000 consumers around the U S and it was done by an organic food company. So if the, this is a hostile witness, if there ever was one and uh, Carrie's Carrie's headline here says, uh, just when you think your work matters, a survey comes along to set you straight. And, and in essence, the survey showed that 81% of Americans have no idea what glyphosate is. Now, <laughs> and, and and I wrote a whole story about this for ACSH called Nobody Knows About Glyphosate, More Evidence, the GMO Debate is Over. So I just went through and kind of mocked Carrie for you know all her navel gazing here. But I think it's good news in that I don't want people to be ignorant of an important topic like this, but I, if they know nothing, they're they're sort of blank slates for for people like you and to a lesser extent people like me to come in and you know offer sort of a baseline education so they can understand how the chemical works, how the chemistry works, why it's important, why farmers use it, you know, and then again, it's sort of a, a conversational reset. So I am hopeful that moving forward, and of course, Bayer has won quite a few cases in a row now. Mm-hmm. against these trial lawyers. So so again, who knows the future, but I think these are encouraging developments. Yeah, and and just along that line, I did try to do a little bit of education and then put in the put in the, you know, so this was on Facebook that she wrote this about this uh you pick operation and I put well, it's a relatively benign uh chemical, it's very safe chemistry that works extremely well and guess what the next box said? <laughs> Monsanto shill. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it says right here in in an article from ten years ago or eight years ago that you got paid from Monsanto. Uh, to, uh, oh my god! And then like a whole pile of links, you know. And it's like, and 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 you know, and, and I wrote back a pointy and mean but somewhat kind rebuttal that you know what is it about people that makes them feel that they need to go into uh, public 
social media space on a popular website, which, you know, deals with small farms in Florida and trash farmers and trash scientists and break the trust in the people who serve small farms and our small farms. I mean, it just is, I mean, you realize how much you're shooting yourself in the foot if you don't like the Monsantos and, uh, you know, uh, you know, ADMs and big food companies, Cargill's, you know, if, if you're, if you're taking out the small farmer and the people in universities who are independent scientists who support them. Mm-hmm. And, and so this was just a real sad, you know, thing. I don't know, but have you heard, um, <laughs> oh, you know what? I got to take a break. We got to take a break for the ad by Calabra. So this is the talking biotech bot cla- <laughs> Easy for you to say. This is a talking biotech podcast by Calabra. We're speaking with Cameron English. And Cameron is a prolific writer who works mostly with ACSH. And um, and and you have two podcasts. You do uh, Science Facts and Fallacies. And what's the other one? The other one is through ACSH. It's called the Science Dispatch Podcast. The Science Dispatch Podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a Talking Biotech Podcast by Collabora. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabora, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabora, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra. We're speaking with Cameron English, who's a prolific writer and podcaster who uh, does the uh, what was it called again? Health. I, I haven't listened to this one. I, I think to do it every week and I haven't done it. So tell me a little bit about the what is it? Health Dispatch? It's called the Science Dispatch Podcast. Science Dispatch. Oh, okay. No wonder I couldn't find it. Go ahead. Tell me about what you do on Science Dispatch. Yeah. Well, it's a similar format to uh, what we did on Science Facts and Fallacies for many years. But instead of uh, talking to you, I actually uh, co-host it with a retired surgeon and um, someone who is uh, a legal scholar. She's a recent addition. But but the idea is we take stuff from the headlines. It's articles that have been published on ACSH's website. And then we just break down the different components of the stories. You know, so recently we did one about uh, this you know, spicy chip challenge. Uh, you know, there's all these dumb teenagers on TikTok eating absurdly hot chi- <laughs> chips. And sadly, <laughs> I think one of one of them recently lost their lost their lives. They're not sure why that happened or maybe mm. if the chip was to blame, but nevertheless, right. So we sat down and I said, I said, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, that's his name. So Dr. Dinnerstein, you know, are the peppers in this chip dangerous? And he said, no. And here's the science and capsaicin this and you know, all the basics. And then we went over to the lawyer and I said, you know, how do you argue a case like this in court? And then we just broke it down. And it's really interesting to get these different aspects of these important stories in the headlines. And I think that sort of context and nuance, it's almost always lacking in media coverage of these different topics. So that's the premise of the show. There's 54 episodes thus far, and uh, we'd love you to join us. Oh, we should do that sometime. Well, how many how many episodes of Science Facts and Fallacies are you up to now? It's like 230-something? 236? Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and this week, as you're listening to Talking Biotech, I actually went back and co-hosted one with Cameron, and we had a lot of fun. Covered some of these same topics. 
Um, so um, the other thing that comes up all the time lately, and maybe I can get your take on this, is um, are you hearing all kinds of stuff about don't eat seed oils anymore? Uh, I have been hearing that for many years. And I remember it may, maybe it's still present in the, especially with all of these influencers, you know, um, multiplying on social media, these health gurus and so forth. Um, so I think it's always present. I remember it being a very, very big issue in the early 2000 teens, you know, 2012, mm-hmm. 2000, right around that era, because there was this real expansion in um, interest in the the low carb and the paleo diet and ancestral health and this kind of thing. And that community, I remember coalescing around this skepticism of industrial seed oils, right? I mean, I think industry is a beautiful word because it's what keeps us all alive and feeds us and gives us all these great things, you know, but nevertheless, industrial seed oils, it just has this kind of deadly (laughs) sort of like, you know, sort of description. But, but yeah, I, I guess all that to say for probably a decade or more, there's been all of this, you know, scare quotes around, you know, canola oil and corn oil, and there's many, many others, but, um, yeah, it's just always been there. And I don't really understand why, you know, and maybe we can get into the specifics here, but uh, I think the the hysteria is is unfounded. Yeah, I think it all goes back to genetic engineering, though. It goes back. I think it's I think it's another anti-biotech thing that was always kind of lurking in the background that never really got the front page because uh, it, it isn't nearly as sexy to talk about, um, you know, uh, bad vegetable oil as it is to sh- talk about lumpy rats or, you know, or formaldehyde. Right. And so right. the, uh, all the other BS claims that were made. And I think where it comes from is that so much oil comes from, uh, comes from soybean, comes from canola, comes from corn, all of which are genetically engineered, uh, plants that make oil. And the funny irony is, is that the oil itself doesn't contain any kind of gene and, you know, it's oil, um, mm-hmm. You know, DNA being water soluble um, fractionates away during purification. So you have oil, which is essentially free of DNA or any of the proteins it encodes. So you have this oil product that's used. And I think, you know, and, and the big issue is, is that when you go back and look at all of the data on polyunsaturated fats versus monounsaturated fats versus saturated fats, we've seen a lot of the, uh, a lot of the arguments against saturated fat kind of fall away and, and maybe it's not as bad as we, it was we, when we were told it was and that monounsaturated fats, things like, um, uh, uh, like canola oil and olive oil seem to be pretty decent and polyunsaturated, certainly decent and saturated, just referring to the number of double bonds in the, in the, uh, tails of the, of the, of the, uh, fatty acid and glycerol components that make up, uh, make up lipids. So the big question is, is, you know, what, what is going on here? Is there more nuance to this? And this is why it really ties in with, with that, with that earlier discussion is what is going on. And I think a lot of this has to do with the omega three and omega six ratio. And so these are two different types of, of, of oils that uh, omega threes are the ones that are found in fish. So salmon and, and, and also things like walnuts. And, and these are looked at as being very favorable. And omega sixes, you know, the data's out and it's all over the place. They're either, they're either super bad or, well, I shouldn't say that either. There's some evidence that maybe they're not so good for you and evidence that they are good for you and evidence that they really don't do anything. And your, our bodies, uh, 
make both and uh, and different fruits and vegetables make both uh, to different levels and different animal products have both. So uh, really what it looks like is the ratio of these two may be the driver and that processed foods that uh, we find in the grocery store where fast food tends to be higher in the omega-6 relative to omega-3. And that's the stuff we refer to as linolenic acid or linoleic acid, linoleic. I'm sorry, not linolenic, linoleic acid. And <laughs> I, I know, well, tomato. Say tomato. it right. <laughs> <laughs> Get it right, scientists say it. No, I mean, well, you, it's like push and pull. They both start with PU and you, you know, you, if you're not reading yeah. past that, you, you don't know what to do at a door. But um, if you're, uh, if you're looking at this, things like safflower oil, grapeseed oil, hemp oil, sorry guys, um, is all like in the, you know, very rich in, Linolenic oil, linolenic oil, so the stuff that's mostly uh, delta six, and other things like uh, coconut oil, um, butter, you know, uh, all the stuff, olive oil. These are all very low, and so this is where. And but so is canola oil. Canola oil is only like twenty uh, percent uh, linoleic acid. So it, it's hard to say exactly um, what um, it, what people are arguing against here. I see it all the time lately. It tends to be um, hand in hand with glyphosate, you know, like, oh, mm -hmm. you don't have any glyphosate residues and you don't have any of the, you know, dangerous oils, you know, um, that kind of thing. But uh, if, what else have you heard about this? I, I think I've, I've primarily heard um, the issue you described, right? It's, it's a GMO. It's made by this big, bad company that just wants to make money no matter how many bunnies or children they kill. Like, it's always the same scary conspiracy. The other thing that I've heard, and there is some research behind this it's that it's that if you eat too many of these omega-6s and you don't get enough of the omega-3s um, things start to go wrong at the cellular level right and you you experience more inflammation and this can cause all sorts of, of health problems my problem with that though is that the research is really mixed as you said you know um, so for example and i'm looking here this is a, a meta-analysis of 30 studies looking at the risk of consuming higher levels of omega-6 fats and they actually found that it was linked to a lower risk of heart disease. Right. So, so in other words, you'll never see that in a CNN headline. You'll never see a, a health guru talking about that, but nevertheless, it's out there and it's in a peer reviewed journal, you know? So, and again, I'm not saying as a result of that, you should go eat as many Twinkies as you can to boost your, you know, your, your omega-6s. That's, that's not the point, but I, I think, there's less clarity here and there's still a lot of research being done. And the fact is we just don't know an incredible amount about nutrition yet. Even after all these years, you know, it's just very difficult to investigate people's diets are different. They're what they like to eat is different. It's, it's hard to put that into a clinical setting and study it very carefully, you know? So we're learning. And I, I think the very unsexy advice that's still very, very relevant is just eat a reasonable diet. Don't eat too much. Do some push-ups, and you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and also when you say you know diets are different, people are different, and the way we yeah. metabolize these things is all different. And a lot of that can add noise to these studies. And so if there are discrete sensitivities or discrete metabolic differences between subgroups of people, we don't always segment those out based upon the clinical studies that are done. Um, and so that's something else that needs to happen. And as we, we're getting better at looking at uh, using biobanks and all of these cohort analyses that tell us more about people and their uh, individual genetics and health issues, you should start to see these relationships fall out. 
Mm-hmm. And I was looking at some of the articles on this. There's one called, and on drclitz.com. Uh, <laughs> or, they, yeah. <laughs> Be careful how you spell that. It's K-L-I-T-Z. <laughs> you can stumble down a rabbit hole there. And, um, and, uh, and they show a graph on here of the prevalence of chronic disease in America from 1940 to 2020. And it's a line that goes from... Um, uh, 7.5% in 1940 to 60% in 2020. So this change that's gone, you know, 53% more people dying of chronic disease now. Well, that's because they don't die of acute disease anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. All the other bad stuff, we're good at controlling it, you know? Right. You're not, you're not dropping dead at 45 of a heart attack. You're not dying of pneumonia. You're not dying. of. So, you know, the, so as anywhere else, these folks over at drclitz.com um <laughs> they, <laughs> they uh k-l-i-t-z um or no no kilts no that's even better drkilts.com i know my 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 contacts are failing me k-i-l-t-z yeah so look at dr kilts um which uh, that's got some weird edges too but basically, this is this is a. They have a bunch of graphs on here that just confuse the hell with correlation and uh, and causation, and you know they're saying you know, here's a study that shows vegetable oil causes heart attack and stroke, and they say you know uh, here's less vegetable oil versus more vegetable oil consumers, 109 participants versus 157. So really small studies, and and it it and the change went from one death to one group and two uh it looks like seven group do- deaths in the other group which you know in statistical uh it, statistics would never give that significance basically mm-hmm. you know, any any way in which you look for statistical significance that happens by chance when you look at 109 participants and 157 participants so well out of 157 they have 50 more participants and six more deaths and and, and they don't even, they're not even saying uh, normalized to out of 100 participants. <laughs> That's pretty good. They had the same cardiovascular death in both groups. And one had 50 more people, which could also be interpreted as there's a protective effect of, all of but anyway, there's too small of a study. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's really uh, a, a sad, sad thing. And that this is more bad information that we now have to diffuse and, um, you know, enjoy your vegetable oil, eat diverse diet. Um, don't chug a gallon of canola oil. You know, there's all kinds of things that we could say here, but I've been hearing this more and more and just wanted to bring it up with you. So, so there you go. Yeah. If I can, uh, let me close here with a quote and this comes from a source that might surprise people, but this is from Mark Sisson. He runs a website called Mark's daily apple. And again, he's very popular in that paleo low carb community. And he he's done some really great writing on this. And one of the points he makes, this is direct quote. He says, no oil exists naturally. Olive oil isn't harvested by leaving open containers under dripping olives on the branch, nor is that liquid sloshing around inside a coconut pure oil. I'm not trying to disparage processing in quotes in and of itself. And it takes a certain amount of processing to get any sort of oil. So I think what he's trying to, and he goes on to say, you know, uh, avocado oil is better than olive oil is better than coconut oil. And so he kind of ranks these based on some of the research he's looked at. But I think that's a really important point is to say that, you know, none of your food or I guess most of your food, it doesn't just like show up in nature and it's beautiful and wholesome and you just go eat it off the tree. Like it's the garden of Eden. It's just, that's just not how food production works. 
and so it's true for anything, right? It doesn't matter what your favorite diet is or what your favorite food is. It's just processing and production. It's just part of it, <laughs> you know? So, so there's no reason to be scared of any of this is I, I suppose the point I'm trying to make. No, it's a very good point. And so if people want to learn more about Cameron English and follow you on social media and maybe check out your other um, media, be it podcasts or writing, where do they find you? I am on uh, X, Twitter, whatever the cool kids are calling it these days. Um, yeah, I'm on there. My my handle is at Cam J English. Um, and you can also just go to acsh.org. Uh, I'm on there. All my articles are there. And uh, if you tweet at me, I'll talk to you. If you want to ask questions or whatever, I'm happy to happy to interact. So reach out to me there. Very good. Now, now, are you on any of the other alternatives? No, I think I got to limit it to Twitter, man. I think you once mm. called it a necessary cesspool. So I'm only gonna <laughs> I'm only gonna dip my foot in one necessary cesspool, and that's that's yeah. really it. So Twitter, yeah. it is. Are you are you a uh, subscriber? Are you paying for this? No. Yeah. See, I'm not paying for it, but since yeah. I've stopped paying for it, I get a lot less traffic and a lot oh. less. So my stuff's getting really deprioritized and uh, algorithmically. So I really do think I need to move somewhere else. And I wish that we could somehow within the scientific community say, everybody go to blue sky or everybody go to threads or, and, and, you know, and, and all those, it, it's hard to say where we would go. But I, I think that we really do need to do this because the, the systematic suppression of information of non of people who are not excited about paying, I get it, but I don't want to be part of it. I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to finance. I don't want to. And, I, and if by paying into it, I'm financing the suppression of the people who can't pay or you know or refuse to pay. So I'm I'm going to stick it out for a little while longer, but. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, tell a friend, write a review, uh, share it on your favorite social media platform, whether it's X Blue Sky or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. Um, your sharing of this makes it grow because we still are getting more people all the time, albeit slowly, but people have more choices of media to consume. So the fact that we keep our numbers high says a lot about you. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Cameron. My pleasure, Kevin. All right. Thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.